Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, LB Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. are within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com and subscribed with your email can i ask you to do that today build the tribe find your herd these are the things i said recently on other people's shows because it's been a couple weeks since you guys have heard it from me at beenawake.com if you're ever wondering whether i go on other people's shows i do there is a hot link for that if you go to beenawake.com slash appearances you can find all the interviews I've done recently with other people. I'd highly recommend if you haven't seen it. My uh, recent appearances on Blackbird, as well as my recent appearance on Year Zero with Tommy Sammons, uh, where we kind of get a little, uh, we got real, we got real basic, real philosophical, kind of talking about the nature of thought and and pushed forward the trin i guess the trinitarian approach the trinitarian <laughs> this trinitarian idea i have of instinct reason and faith and trying to draw the connections between that and we're going to get into some of that today on the show as well um i wanted to once again just thank everybody for listening to this i um i haven't been posting a lot recently because we had um my, my grandfather passed away uh just uh, just a few days ago so um i do a lot of this stuff in you know, I did it a lot because of the way he, you know, what he did to come to this country and I'll have a, I'll be writing about this soon enough, but yeah, so that's one of the reasons. So I apologize. Uh, I guess I don't really apologize for prioritizing my family, but it was something that I wanted to do. It just wasn't in the cards. And I, I think all of us who are passionate about creating content or talking about ideas have this thing where when we don't do it, we kind of feel bad, even though we're doing a lot of other things. Um, and like I said, including, including keeping, including trying to be there for uh, family members when, when they're in need. So um, your uh, thoughts and prayers are of course, welcome. And thank you for those of you who have shared them with me already. It means a great deal. And um, you know, I'll, I'll probably tell you more about him some other day, what we're going to do since it's been a couple of weeks, but I was writing. So, you know, just in case you're listening to the podcast feed, this is why I tell you to go to binawake.com and subscribe with your email address, because in addition to the show, everything that I cover is usually not always, but usually covered at binawake.com in an article that I write or curate. Sometimes I am just bringing information from other news sources, but a lot of times they are original pieces of better sense making, as I like to call it. And one more piece of um, showkeeping is, you know, I'm just looking at the, uh, I'm just looking at the screen here. You know, it's it, you only got 23 days left. That's kind of crazy because so what I did was I set the uh, the current promo at beenawake.com/slash/subscribe for a lifetime discount of 50% off. So if you want to give me five bucks a month, that would just be fantastic. It means the world to me. It'll help go to fund things like advertising and growing the show. Um, you can do an annual subscription as well, but there's only 23 days left. And what that 23 days means is it's almost a year since I've been writing here at beenawake.com and producing this show, which is pretty freaking crazy. Um, 
this is uh, something I've always wanted to do. So I'm happy to keep doing it. And I am more than thankful for the people who have taken the time out of their busy schedules and busy days to actually listen to the words that I have to say or to follow me on Twitter, interact and respond. And the only thing I wish is that this continues to grow and that we all keep getting becoming better versions of ourselves. Uh, Because that's certainly one thing that I've been thinking a lot about even before, you know, even before we get into the articles from this week, coming up on a year of producing content like this and I've, I've talked about the fact that I have, you know, a day job that I really, really like, and I don't really for, while this would be fun, this would be great to see as my main source of income. It doesn't, I don't know that that's exactly what the future is going to hold, but improving yourself, but this is, but this is why I was, what I was driving at is I've had, I've been thinking a lot lately about how I can make the content I produce better and what kind of content I should be producing and you know where I should be focusing my efforts as far as doing the show or writing and how I write and the things that I write. And one thing that's at the center of all of it is the need, the desire for self-improvement and to make sure that I'm dedicating my efforts in the most fruitful manner, the, the most fruitful of manners. Uh, and, and, and the show is, is going to, the show is going to continue. This isn't going to change anything about that. Um, but you might start to see a little more motivational content from me. Um, something that's a little more, you might start to see some content that's, uh, if you heard that crash, that was a light falling, not anything breakable though. Don't worry. If you, um, so you might start to notice a, a little bit of a change in the content, but, but hopefully not too much. It'll still be the, philo- this will be the outlet for philosophy. You just might see some stuff that would also, I don't know, make a good article on LinkedIn coming out on the feeds of beenawake.com. And I think that stuff is important. The idea of self-improvement, motivation, and making sure that you yourself are prepared to tackle the world and to do it the best that you can. And one great way that you can do that other than being subscribed to beenawake.com is to learn more about economics. To learn more about economics and the economic method and specifically near and dear to my heart is the Austrian School of Economics. We call it the Austrian School because most of the progenitors of the ideas were from Austria, were from the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. And they, you know, so, so that's where the name comes from. It's not a nationalist thing by any stretch of the imagination. It's just the Austrian t- tradition. And in fact, most of the Austrian tradition exists here in the United States and it exists at the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. So I did put a, put a, put a post up there. You can find it in the show notes today. If you want, every single year at the Mises Institute, at the Mises Institute, they host Mises University. And what Mises University is is basically an introductory, introductory level series of lectures for students who actually go on site, where you can interact and uh, interact with some of the brightest minds in the country, in, in my estimation. And you know, these kids get to learn from these people and do and do uh, Q and A sessions, so on and so forth. I never went. I always kind of wished that I had gone, but I never went as a student. But I've I've always watched the lectures on YouTube. And if you have never done it before, I'd highly recommend it. If you ever have asked yourself, what is what is money? That's one of my favorite lectures that they do. There are lectures, there were lectures on there's lectures on praxeology, which is the Misesian method, which you if I effectively engage in, in praxeology and most of my reasonings and in, in philosophical output is I, I've, I've taken a lot from the praxeological method 
right? This is where I get the pantheonic approach is just taking and reapplying some of the ideas found in Mises's in methodological individualism as part of human action. So if you want to understand, you know, I, I like to get feedback and I asked for feedback recently on a couple of episodes that I've done. And one, one part was it like, well, I need to understand more about anarchism and more about libertarianism to really engage with the conversation. And that's fair because sometimes, especially when I'm doing interviews, I'm talking with people who already have a base of knowledge. And that's one of the nice things about this show is I can take a little bit of time when it's appropriate to actually explore and make sure I give the best, the best definitions and the best ideas in the simplest way possible so that somebody who's new to the ideas would be able to come along. So I guess in brief, let's just answer those questions. And let's just try to take down those questions. One, two, three. In the first place, anarchy, at least in that we'll talk about it on this show, is not chaos. Normally, anarchy is associated with the term chaos, but that has a lot more to do with the way we use words to influence others and, and the way politics can corrupt language. Anarchy is a simple statement of as a simple statement of a collection of ideas, right? Anarchy as a school of thought simply means without rulers. So it is, so they are, because there are multiple forms of it. And you can go to the anarchisthandbook.com and get the best-selling book that Michael Malice just released. But Anarchy is effectively a system of a system of society or just society without rulers. So in general, without any form of government whatsoever. Again, there's variations inside of that, but that's the simplest thing that you need to know. And now that I, I say simple, obviously, if this is the first time you're coming across these ideas, it might seem rather complicated, but it is something that it is something where there is a logic to it. And it's if for nothing else. It is an idea. They are really ideas worth your time. Precisely because of the fact that it's important to expand your mind and expand your horizons to think about what is possible. If you want to be a how would I say this? If you want to be somebody whose opinion matters and, and that might not be what you're interested in. And doing. You might just be interested in listening to a great show where you can be entertained and learn a couple of interesting things. And thank you for thank you for choosing this show for that. But if you want to make sure that you're somebody who has interesting things to say, it's important that you keep an open mind. And certainly when I first came across uh, the different anarchist circles, that was something that I did. Now, I've never claimed the label anarchist for myself. Myself, I call myself a skeptic in all things. But it is, but but that's the basic definition of anarchy, and there's many different variations. As others would say, the black flag comes in many colors. Second, then to define would be libertarianism, and and while this is a definition in flux of some kind, at least in the way that I would be using it, or the people that most of the people that I talk to would be using it, libertarianism is a political philosophy or a legal theory that ascribes non-aggression. So it comes from the idea of self-ownership that we as individuals fundamentally own ourselves. And then from there you go and you discuss, and you can say, well, if I own myself, then it's wrong for somebody to aggress on me or to own me or to do things like that. And therefore it is also wrong for me to aggress on other people because they own themselves. So it extrapolates an entire legal theorem from the idea of non-aggression. Now, if you've listened to some of the interviews that I've done recently with people like Matt Erickson, Adam Patrick, and some others, you might have heard of this post-libertarian or what is much better being, much better being called a Praxian 
uh, the Praxians, people who are more interested in putting ideas into practice than they are with flushing them out in, a, in the abstract. And I can't, and I'm very excited to see a lot of people moving in that direction. It's something that have happened with myself just as a matter of necessity, right? Having to put ideas into action and actually having to step up and do the things that I want uh, and make sure that, make sure that I can survive. <laughs> and so that caused me to make sure that I could put my ideas into action. So, so there's, so, so even with those people, they would still take a lot of the libertarian, um, the libertarian message and ethos, and they're just trying to carry the ideas forward. So that's what I mean when I say libertarianism might actually be in some state of flux at the moment. And, and there's something to be said for the fact that given, um, given the marginality, right, given the fact that libertarianism exists on the, the margins of political thought, we are not the mainstream. Though we are influential, that's that's an important that's an important side effect, as I've talked about before. Interestingly enough, at least in America, libertarianism still holds some sway. It still holds some cultural cachet. Um, people will refer to themselves as being libertarian in one form or another. And what's very interesting, and what I will write about uh, soon enough, is how well is how I think you can actually rectify the fact that some libertarians seem are, are populist in nature, and some libertarians are supporters of the regime. And once again, you know, we've been, I've been discussing this, and we're going to get into it in the future in Three Flags of why I think this is happening. So if you, but if you want a lot of that theory to undergird, if you've never explored economics, there is no better place I could send you than, than, than the Mises Institute. I owe them a great deal. I have donated to them in the past. I will donate to them in the future. But Mises University is one of the best things ever. You can go back for the last 10 years and see these lectures available for free. And these are, again, college-level courses with some of the greatest economic minds in the country who all spend their time and care about these same ideas. So that's, that, was, that, was one of the, that was one of the articles that, we, um, that I posted up over the last couple of weeks. And again, I'd highly, highly recommend you all check it out. So then what we're going to move into next is my three-part series that I did about Simone Biles. Now, I want to kind of, I'll probably cover this again as we start to read through the pieces, but I did want to serve up quickly why I decided to cover this article or why I decided to cover this story. Because when it first came across my newsfeed, I thought it was something that we should just ignore. I didn't think there was any, in the moment of creating that, I didn't think that there was anything worth doing when it came to when it came to, to covering the story, I didn't think it was important. I didn't think it was worth the time and consideration of my readers and others to actually cover it. And, I, and, it, and it happened in this way. I saw somebody, you know, it was, it was Twitter, as, as most things tend to be when it comes to when it's news related. And somebody had like tweeted out that, you know, though, this is such a good thing and blah, 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 blah. And even I and then I kind of reacted. And then I'm like, well, this is dumb. Why am I reacting to the story that I don't even really care about? Oh, it's because they want me to react. And so I'm like, okay, I shouldn't cover this. But then after a couple more days, I had some second thoughts. And I realized that there was, that the pattern was worth exploring because it really does, it really does emulate a lot of the cultural attitudes that are coming to be, right? That are coming to be in our, in our day. Really what we're witnessing right now is just the solidification in some respects of this new of this new morality for, for large segments of the population. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I did cover this in the future. This is talked about in the future in three flags. So 
let's get into the Simone Biles piece together. And we're going to cover it very, very carefully. And we're going to have a great time while doing it. So anyone watching the Olympics this year? Actually, they're over now. But when I wrote this, they were still happening. So while I grew up watching the summer and winter games closely every two years, every two years, this this time I haven't really bothered. This is mostly due to the fact that I don't pay for cable, but I also knew that the woke Olympics were going to suck. And so far, I've been right. While I haven't been watching the events, I do go on Twitter. This means that I learned with everyone else that Simone Biles, arguably the best gymnast in the world, had pulled out of the team competition and all but one of the solo events, which she ended up placing, uh, getting a bronze in, I believe. It was the balance beam. There are a few angles that we're going to cover. First, we're going to talk about what the Olympics are for. Then we're going to discuss the media narrative that envelops an athlete like Miss Biles. And finally, we're going to take a hard look at depravity and corruption. So just to reiterate, the three points that we are hitting on in this, art, in this series of articles is the Olympics, what the Olympics mean, what they represent at a more, let's say, spiritual level or as a metaphorical exercise, right? They are in that they are symbolic in that they are rituals. What are the Olympics? What do they actually constitute? Then we're going to talk about the media narrative that envelops an athlete, especially an athlete like Miss Biles, who's, who's operating at such a high level. And finally, we're going to take a hard look at depravity and corruption. So let's start with what they're for. The Olympics are a tradition that traced to ancient Greece. As lore and history would put it, 776 BC were the first Olympic Games. The tribes of Hellenistic Greece over time would congregate at Olympia, where there was a massive temple dedicated to Zeus. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the figure of Zeus held in that temple. Doesn't exist now. I've been there. This destination was for pilgrims and the sanctuary for travelers, Olympia was. The games were considered holy, which meant that the city-states would impose an honor, would impose and honor a truce. So all conflict, all wars would end whenever there was an Olympiad. Eventually, the various city-states of ancient Greece would would compete in these games as adversaries, not enemies. Champions were thought to have the favor of Zeus and other gods, and were treated as heroes when they returned to their homes. One thing ancient Greeks believed was that by competing in these athletic endeavors, they were pleasing and serving their gods. To the ancients, this was the highest calling, pleasing and serving the gods, so much so that they were willing to compete with other Greeks who were not their kin. They were not, you know, while today we might think of Greece as a single thing, given the modern nation state, which we're going to get into, We might think that Greece is all one thing, but at the time, at least at the time of the Olympiads, of the the ancient Olympics, excuse me, you know, if you were from Athens, you would not associate it with somebody from Sparta, unless you happen to maybe be, I guess, a merchant who went in between both places. But you, the average person didn't just like, it wasn't like the way somebody from Chicago might interact with somebody from New York or somebody from St. Louis, as we have it today. This was much more, much closer to interacting with somebody from another country who, who speaks the same language as you. And, and who also had, who was culturally distinct. And I guess I should make that, and I make that point because if, for example, you know, as an American, you might interact with a Canadian and there is enough cultural similarity between the two of us, uh, between, you know, people of both, of both countries that, you know, you can, you can generally speak and get along. You don't really notice so much of the differences especially in a very casual interaction with somebody. 
And that wasn't, again, I'm trying to draw out that this wasn't the case in ancient Greece where they were actually holding these Olympic games. One thing, oh, we already did that. The modern games began with the incorporation of the International Olympic Committee in 1896 and games held in Athens that year. I feel it's my duty to point out just how many of the institutions and ideas that animated the 20th century began in the 20 to 30 odd years before the official turn of the century. In 1896, the world was changing fast. And while few would believe it in the time, few would believe it at the time, European monarchs and Turkish emperors, empires would soon end. America was a rising power and something was needed to unite this new world. Gone are the gods of ancient times, but that doesn't mean there isn't a deeper meaning to the games we watch today. While the athletes in their individual pursuits are engaging in the noble practice of sport, the opening ceremonies and medal count coverage are a clue as to what I think the modern games really honor, serve, and by extension worship. This would be the nation state. So we don't have Zeus and Hera like they did in ancient Greece. But again, that doesn't mean there isn't deeper meaning. As somebody who's a bit of an outsider to the world of professional sports, I don't really actively follow. Yeah, I don't, I don't ever watch ESPN. Let's just, let's just try and make it that simple. And there's no cheating here by saying I even go to a place. I don't even really go to a place like Barstool or uh, Fox Sports or anything like that. It's just not something that I do. But as an, out, so as an outsider, though, I still can recognize and appreciate because it's not like I don't go to sporting events or I don't like watching something on TV every now and then I can still, I can still understand and appreciate the necessity, the glory, the honor, the nobility in sport. Watching somebody compete at a very high athletic level is exciting. It does something to us as humans. And the Olympic games are kind of an early way of trying to express that. And in in a sense, unite people as a consequence. And that still happens, I would, I would say, at the level of individual competition between the athletes. But that's not all that happens at an event like this. So again, I say, we look at, we, we look at the way the coverage works. We look at the way that the rituals of the games themselves are put together. And how does that work? Well, the opening ceremony happens, and each person, each team comes out, with their country. If you watch NBC in the United States, at least there's a medal count. So you know which countries have the most medals. And of course, when the people are on the podium, it's their country's anthem that plays. And it is in these ways, and it is in this way that I think it is very fair to say that the modern Olympic Games worship the nation state, especially when we consider the way that the games took structure and shape in a post-World War I world, Earth. So we don't watch an opening ceremony where all the athletes walk side by side and mingle amongst themselves. Instead, we witness a parade where each block of competitors are led by their country's flag. Where the ancient Greeks had their city-states, today we live under nation-states. The borders of these nation-states were established mostly after the Great War or World War I, and largely finalized after the Second World War and subsequent dissolution of the Soviet Union. It would be my contention 
that for whatever else might be occurring at the individual level between athletes, many of whom train with their competition and live in different countries than they represent in the games, the larger narrative around the games centers and therefore worships the various nation states currently found on earth as the charter of the IOC states. The goal of Olympia, Olympism is to place sport at the center of the harmonious development of humankind with a view promoting a peaceful society concerned with the preservation of human dignity. So it's a very common, uh, you know, UN neoliberal world order type statement. Where once the case could be made for amateurism, today we watch medal counts on the television and seeing how our country stacks up against theirs. Growing up as an American, this was always a positive experience, but it'll be interesting to see whether that trend continues into the future. So that's part one. Let's talk about part two. I'll grant that this piece isn't as timely, especially now me recording it, but I'll grant that this piece isn't as timely as it could be, but there's a pattern in the Simone Biles story that every reader of Been Awake needs to recognize. It's not an accident when stories like this go viral or as visceral as this one did. The question I'll answer in part two is why. In 1917, Marcel Duchamp submitted his famous fountain sculpture, where it was loudly proclaimed by all who saw it to not be art. Over 100 years later, it is considered one of the greatest pieces of art in the conceptual field. So if you go to binawake.com and you check out this article, you'll see a picture. And if you think that picture looks like somebody turned a ur- took a urinal, turned it upside down and signed their name on it, you would be 100% correct because this is exactly what Duchamp did to the protestations of all those around him. We could, spend, we could spend an entire piece dissecting whether conceptual art is in fact artistic, but let's save that for another day. But let me quickly go ahead and give you guys, just in case you don't know, a little bit of the background of what I'm talking about, especially because I, as this is audio driven, it's going to be a little bit difficult for you to really make the connection. So if you don't know, conceptual art starts in like the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. And part of conceptualism that differs, that differs from other pieces of art, and certainly art historically, is that the idea is just as important as what is put down on paper. And in fact, sometimes the idea of a piece is more important than the physical object seen in front of you. So Duchamp, who was, a, you know, who was a, an artist of, of some renown at the time, ended up creating multiple versions of these ready-mades, as he called them. And the idea behind a ready-made was he would just take an everyday mass-produced object and display it and therefore call it art. So the fountain, which is, which is the first time he ever did this in his most famous version of this, was literally just a urinal that he saw walking through New York City. And he displayed it and submitted it to, to an art gallery and said, this is, my art, this is my art installation. Now, for some people... That might sound about that might sound the height of absurd of, of absurdity. And, you know, you're, there's a little bit of absurdity to it. But see, part of conceptualism and for whatever else we might say, and there's there's perhaps a bit of a divide we can make between conceptual art and then modern art. And some of modern art is is frankly awful. Right. I think a lot of the stuff, a lot of the a lot of art is awful. Most art is awful. It's, it's Pareto distributions hold throughout. So, of course, the best is always going to stay and the worst will fall away. Well, Duchamp has, has remained the best, and I don't think it's just because of some, I don't know, gestalt leftist influence on things. 
see, I think there's something to that pushing the ideas, pushing the boundaries of what one would consider to be art and the purpose of art. And I think that's what the conceptual, what, what, what conceptualism does well. It's, you know, it, it's some, it's not for everybody. And of course, if you walk through an art inst- in gallery and you're looking at pretty paintings, and then suddenly you see a urinal that somebody signed, you might think, well, what is this? But of course, that's again, the idea of conceptualism is the idea behind it. Even if the idea isn't plainly available to you as the viewer, the idea behind it is just as important as the physical manifestation of what you see in front of you. Duchamp made multiple ready-made sculptures in his career. All of them involved taking an everyday mundane object and transforming it into a work of art. He did so by proclaiming it to be art. Let's be clear. There is nothing special about the urinal Duchamp used for his initial sculpture. He did not mold it himself, nor did he commission its design. He took a store-bought, mass-produced item and claimed it to be art for all who would listen. Soon enough, many did. Everybody knows that if it bleeds, it leads. Of all our human emotions, nothing has power over us the way anger does. Anger can lead you to despair, death, and destruction. If you're a media outlet, however, anger will lead you to clicks. Facebook and other social media companies have experimented on users to determine whether they can manipulate our emotions by controlling what the algorithm shows us. And spoiler alert, they absolutely can. They can manipulate your emotional state by what they choose to show you and not show you. So let me ask you this question. Have you noticed that people on your social media feed tend to be angry? Here's another one. Have you noticed that so much of cable news involves a lot of yelling? Cable news and talk radio involves a lot of yelling. Wouldn't you say that? There is comfort in misery. If you are unhappy with your lot in life, it is far easier to get angry at other people and what they've done rather than consider how you may have contributed to your station in life, to your lot in life. While it may seem counterintuitive, there's also comfort in getting angry, especially about trivial matters. So much of what the corporate press and cable news does is give people an outlet for that anger. As a consequence of this, most people believe that getting angry is the only way they can react to the news, and so-called journalists will often reinforce this in their articles and tweets. So what does getting pissed have to do with the Simone Biles controversy? For that answer, we have to remember your marching orders for CRT. In that piece, I artistically demonstrate the way in which the same words can be structured, can, can construct parallel narratives that provide no understanding. Let me go back because I kind of had a typo in that. In my piece, Your Marching Orders for CRT, I artistically demonstrated the way in which the same words can construct parallel narratives that provide no understanding, but instead fill people with the appearance of certainly righteousness, but also anger. I wrote yesterday that this story envelops an athlete like Simone Biles. In many ways, her true thoughts and feelings are irrelevant. And this is the case for everybody who finds themselves at the center of a media controversy. Their true thoughts and feelings are actually irrelevant. Your decision about how you feel about the situation is, generally speaking, a consequence of the type of news and information you consume. 
and the tone that those people take on because we are mimetic creatures. We are creatures that copy. So if somebody comes up to you and says, can you believe, can you believe that this Biles chick dropped out of competition? You might, you, you know, if, if you feel, if you don't have anything else to think about the matter, if you haven't looked into it, you might be like, wait, what do you mean she has? She dropped out of competition. Isn't she the one that I see on all the commercials? And your friend response might do something like, yeah, dude, she had like, she had like some mental health issues. She, she claimed, I mean, I don't even know what it's about. And so like, she decided to just drop out of the competition, like, and left her team hanging. Can you believe that? Okay. So that's one way you could approach the situation. And if you're somebody who doesn't know the story and you're inclined to that kind of a reasoning, you might then say, well, screw her. What is up with that? Winners win champions, champions find a way. Okay. So let's look at another one. Wow. Simone Biles, man. Isn't she a great gymnast? Yeah. Did you see what she did? No, no. What did she do? Well, she, you know, she, she actually pulled out a competition. Apparently she had this thing called the spinnies with like, and when, when this happens to gymnasts, they can't, they like can't place themselves in the air. Right. And so when you're doing a flip, it's really important to know where your feet are to know whether you have to keep rotating and whether you're going to hit the ground properly or not. And I guess she couldn't even do that. And she still tried to compete and, and it just didn't work out. And if you watch the video, you'll see it in her face. And, and so she just, she decided to pull out for her mental health. And isn't that so important? Isn't it important that we, and it's just, it's, it shows true bravery on her part because so many people are going to be upset with her. And the fact that she was willing to do that and not put herself at risk so that she could, you know, so that she could keep herself in good condition. I, I don't know. I just think that's pretty great that she did that. And you might, if you have no to that, you might say like, yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. I'll have to read more about it. And gosh, I hope she's okay. That's what I mean when I say a story like this envelops the person and can, we can generate multiple storylines that really give no understanding or any real perspective. What it does is gin up people to react against it, to react in the way, to react in this preformed, prepackaged way. Because here's the thing. I don't know. I don't know Simone Biles personally, so I, I, wouldn't pretend to be able to know what she's thinking or feeling in a time like this. Moreover, she has become enough of an icon that there will always be people in between her and the broader public. And what those people between Simone Biles and the broader public are designed to do is spin the story, whichever way they're whichever way they can. So let's say for example, that everything Simone said is, is hundred percent wrong. Let's say that she was just, she just decided to be a, a horrible person and pull out a competition. I don't think this is the case, by the way, but let's just assume the people who got angry at her, you know, because the first part is, did Simone Biles make you mad? Let's just assume the people that got angry at Simone Biles are completely right, that she's a wimp, she's a child, she's spoiled, all those awful things. It would still be the job of the people between Simone Biles and the broader population to spin the story the best way they could for Simone. Same thing if we grant every good thing. There would still be people who want to try and spin it negatively. And once you reach a certain level of prominence, you don't get to assume once somebody reaches a certain level of prominence and, you know, for if you want an objective categorization for this, how about a massive ad campaign where you are the star in all of it? Those are, that's millions of dollars in advertising. That's millions of advertising dollars spent 
putting her into commercials. So of course you need to make sure that whatever she chooses to do, we can maintain her image. Again, I'm not trying to take anything away from Simone Biles. I don't even think in this situation, I think in this situation as we're going to get into in part three, there's a completely logical reason why somebody like her would just choose to pull out a competition when her brain isn't functioning correctly. This isn't just a question of getting a little sad, right? Like there's some real stuff at the center of this. I, but I don't know Biles. I don't know her. But, the, and then, no, but I do know that there's people spinning the story. So it is in this way that I view these sorts of events as ready-made. They're ready-made stories for the press to use, dividing an already polarized people. With the same facts, you can present two simultaneous narratives for the cult of American democracy. If you were a good Democrat, when the story about Miss Biles pulling out of the team competition broke, your marching orders were to elevate the importance of mental health and castigate anyone who would criticize her actions as wrong. If you were a good Republican, when the story about Miss Biles pulling out of the team competition broke, your marching orders were to castigate the importance of mental health and elevate the importance of criticizing her actions as wrong. Now, is there merit to the argument that mental health is important? Absolutely. Is there merit to the argument that it's wrong to back out of competition at the last minute? Absolutely. Is there better sense making than the coverage from outlets like Daily Wire and Teen Vogue? Well, that's part three, which we're going to get into right now. In part two, I briefly mentioned the nobility of the individual actors, the, the nobility of individual actors engaging in pure sport. Operating simultaneously are the media narratives that surround the engagement. Others will defend and explain the importance of sport to human culture and civilization better than I can. But that being said, the Olympics are the one occasion that the common person sees countless examples of sport across cultures and aptitude. It's also worth noting that spectator sports, while ubiquitous across most of the world today, and spectator sports just for, sim just for simplicity's sake is, you know, soccer, football, uh, baseball, basketball, hockey, pretty much any of the professional sporting events that we have in the United States and across the world. While, you, while spectator sports are ubiquitous across most of the developed world, certainly, but really the world at large, they are a relatively recent evolution. A thorough examination of this would best be left to another piece. The purpose of today's article is to draw out the corruption that far too often hides itself in the glory of individual pursuits. It was not the noble abstract idea of sport that you recall from your youth that Simone Biles removed herself from, it was the following. Let me, let me read that sentence again, because it's really important. It was, not the, it was not the sport you played as a kid, right? It wasn't the pickup game of baseball that you played in your backyard with your brothers and your buddies growing up, or when everybody would put their skates on and play hockey in the cul-de-sac, or when the World Cup came around, so everybody decided that it was time to play football. And you played it in the street because you know that you thought that was cooler than playing it in the grass that's not what we're taught that's not what miss biles that's not what simone had involved herself in when you know with the, and, and and frankly something that started before she was really able to make decisions for for herself as the governing body of the modern olympic games the IOC is responsible for taking the bids of various countries to hold the games. 
The final price point for the Olympic Games tally in the billions of dollars. This much money changing hands, plus the added intangible of national pride and prestige, creates the conditions right for corrupt actors to excel. It doesn't take a lot of searching on the internet to find accusations of corruption and investigations into the IOC and other entities associated with the Olympic Games. Take this story from June of 2017. It claims the final price tag for the 2016 Games in Rio cost 48% more than the initial budget. Then there's this story about a former governor of Rio de Janeiro now serving prison time for corruption, claiming he helped facilitate a $2 million bribe to secure Rio's spot in 2016. I'm not trying to pick on Brazil here. There are similar claims about the games in Tokyo that a Japanese national took money illegally to force a vote for Tokyo. This accusation was levied in conjunction with a French investigation that is, quote, a years-long and wide-ranging probe into sports corruption that is looking at, amongst other things, the bidding contests for the 2020 Olympic Games and other major sporting events. I think the best demonstration of corruption at the heart of the Olympic governing body is what they leave in their wake. Search abandoned Olympic stadiums and you return headlines like abandoned Olympics venues that cost billions to build, haunting photos of abandoned Olympic stadium. These abandoned Olympic venues look so sad. Abandoned Olympic venues prove the games are a giant waste of money. And finally, what abandoned Olympic venues and stadiums from around the world look like today. The billions of dollars in investment on the part of the host countries are more often than not a detriment to the people of those countries. In Brazil, entire neighborhoods were destroyed to pave way for the Olympic structures that now sit abandoned. Before you click the story, guess whether you think it was a rich neighborhood or a poor neighborhood torn down for the glory of the Olympic Games. Do you have a guess in your head? Because it wasn't a rich neighborhood. It's, of course, a poor neighborhood that they tear down. And so let me let's let's belabor this point for a second, because I don't want to be accused of special pleading here. Of course, when the Olympics happen in a in a in a country like Japan, there's less. There are fewer people who are, let's say, relocated. But when it comes to countries like China, countries like, like, like Brazil and others, those are just recent ones from my memory. But even Athens, even in Athens, a lot of those stadiums are in complete disarray today because nobody is there to use them. The building money spent is for the prestige of the people who get to say I hosted an Olympic game. And the common people are the ones who suffer. So that's just one level of corruption, and that's at the highest levels of the IOC. See, supposedly, as we read earlier, right, they're about like they're about the dignity of all humankind. What about the dignity of people who were removed from their homes so that we could build a soccer stadium that would only be used once? What about that? Or, you know, let's be let's let's make sure that i'm not soccer is popular in brazil so let's choose a sport like dressage or rhythm gymnastics or something like that where there isn't a large ready audience for those kinds of events nor people who want to rent out that kind of stadium whose life is actually more important so that's one level layer of corruption now let's talk about the usag united states gymnastics while unethical The types of corruption detailed that the IOC engage in are fairly vanilla, if we're being honest. 
it's a lot of rich people paying off other rich people to make sure that something happens where they get to brag to their friends about it. Now, if we move our attention to USA Gymnastics, they allowed a sexual abuser to masquerade as a medical expert for the greater part of 30 years. Larry Nasser was finally sentenced for 40 to 125 years in federal prison. Convictions included these assaults and assaults on and also child assaults on children and also child pornography. The problem went deeper than just Larry Nasser as the Indianapolis Star demonstrated in its reporting. By many accounts, predators were allowed to operate within the broader USA Gymnastics organization with impunity. Let's talk about the F. So that's another layer of corruption and depravity that surrounded somebody like Simone Biles. The organization that she dedicated herself to, that she trained at and operated in, allowed abusers to operate freely. That, and, when, and when people were complaining about abuse, instead of doing something about it and removing, removing somebody who was abusing young children, young girls, they let them, they let them continue to operate. And now let's turn to the FBI. The Office of Inspector General, which is tasked with investigating other government agencies, released a report on July 14, 2021. July 14, 2021. I'm recording this on I'm recording this on August 15th. So ask yourself this following question. Have you heard this story? Have you heard the story I'm about to talk to you about? On July 14th, the inspector general released a report detailing the ways in which the Federal Bureau of Investigation, quote, failed to respond to allegations of sexual abuse of athletes by former USA Gymnastics physician Lawrence Gerard Nasser with the urgency that the allegations required. In other words, they didn't bother. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, which in part, which has a huge section dedicated to child trafficking, sex trafficking, and, and exploitation of children. Hell, I think they're the ones who manage the Center for Missing and Exploited Children, right? The FBI got its start looking for kidnappers because, you know, they would cross state lines. And so they were the ones with the resources, right? This is the story of the FBI you're taught as a kid. But the FBI of the 21st century certainly would have been the case back then, too. They didn't bother to fully investigate the claims or properly notify elements inside of the FBI that could have protected these young gymnasts, these young girls, these young women, and probably young boys too. They could have stopped the predation and they chose not to. And the inspector general said as much in their report, which is of course linked in my article. Raising a champion. So that's another layer of corruption and depravity. That's like some real depravity right there. People that, are, that supposedly are there to protect, ostensibly there to protect. Well, of course, they are protecting. What are they protecting? Well, they're protecting the reputation of USA Gymnastics. Just like all the people who turn their eyes on the, on the, on the physical therapists and doctors who were touching girls inappropriately, they all turned a blind eye. Some people didn't know, but, but some people did. Now we come back to raising a champion. These are the circles that 24-year-old Simone Biles has spent her life within. I often wonder, I wonder about what, what it looks like to raise a champion, right? And what an upbringing for champions like Simone Biles and others look like. 
proteges can be found in many fields, but the ones associated with the greatest amounts of fame, athletics, music, movies, television, dancing, modeling, and so on, all seem to have problems with abuse. As a mental exercise, it is worth considering the type of environment these children destined for fame and celebrity are exposed to. As a parallel example, we might look to the recent court proceedings over conservatorship of Britney Spears. There is a quasi-virginal sacrifice. There's, there's, this, there's a ritual. There's a ritual within pop culture that is this quasi-virginal sacrifice that is constantly looking for the hot new thing, building them up, casting them aside and moving on to something better, something newer and fresher. Replacing a teenage girl like Britney Spears with a teenage boy like Lil Nas X accomplishes the same endeavor. So, you know, I've talked a little bit about how I used to do music. I grew up kind of acting, doing things like that. And I had, um, I had a friend in my early years uh, when I lived in Miami. We were going to school down there. And I had a friend and she was this beautiful singer, great dancer. And she was an opera singer in particular. She had a beautiful, beautiful soprano voice. And we would sometimes, as we were sitting around kind of talking, hanging out, having a good time, whatever, we made, a, we made the joke that, gosh, if only our parents had exploited us, where could we be now? Because her, like me, you know, my parents weren't, my parents weren't interested in, in us rising to you know, the heights of fame, not that they were opposed to it. But they, you know, they were more interested in my siblings and I pursuing our passions and doing things that we enjoyed and, you know, and, enga and engaging with our peer groups and those sorts of things. That's not the kind of parenting, and, and that might be similar to the kind of parenting that you had, right? Even if you were a good athlete, let's say, but you weren't going, let's say, you know, you were just a decent athlete who could maybe go to, maybe go to school on a scholarship, you would still have some motivation to keep pursuing uh, pursuing the sport and participating in it, but but there's a separate level when when you realize you might be an Olympian, right? If or if all you have is being a professional athlete, because that's all anybody in your family that because you, you don't have other measures of success around you in in your family, let's say, or in or in the broader culture in which you came up in. So maybe the only thing you have is to go and become a musician, go and become a singer, go and become a rapper go and become a football player, a soccer player, so on, what have you. I think those kinds of people grow up in such a way that can, how do I say this? We all, it's, I, I would hope to think you're, maybe somebody, maybe somebody's screaming at me in their ear right now because it's like, it's this word. But there's something about that kind of life that removes so many other experiences, right? It's a sacrifice in the present for payoff in the future. And there is a parent, right, that wants to raise a champion and will do anything to get there. And I think if you participated in any kind of group activity or sport, you've seen this. There's an entire reality show called Dance Mom that kind of goes to this effect. And again, my, my background is more on the performing arts side of things. So that tends to be what I, what I remember. But I know the same thing holds in sports, right? There's the dad who yells at the umpire and referee and coach because his son isn't getting enough playing time. That exists. 
somebody like Simone Biles is 10, 15 years into something like this before she even becomes a full person, right? Until our brain stops developing in our early 20s. That's, that's the world that she came up in and that she grew up in. It wasn't, you know, you going out with some buddies and again, shooting hoops in the, in the driveway or, or going for a bike ride and finding a and baseball diamond or playing again, playing hockey in the cul-de-sac, playing soccer in the backyard. That's not that, that, that might, that's certainly a part of what she does, but she was surrounded by all these layers of corruption around her. And maybe, I don't know, but we certainly enjoy the show as a consequence. So it would seem to me that corruption lives inside many of these organizations, firstly, because parents are willing to put up with it for the reward of fame, but also because of the corporate element involved. The corporation's job is to keep the corporation alive and provide a product or service for consumers to enjoy. Despite all the well-documented cases of corruption surrounding the Olympic Games, the consumer still chooses to cheer on the Olympics. I'll let Simone Biles speak for herself. But certainly I can rationalize not wanting to compete when you realize how many of the people you were raised around and cared for were victims by adults you, were chose, you chose to trust. You were told to trust, really. I, I get that. I understand why you would want to pull out a competition if it, things aren't going well. It's not even like the professional athletes of like, you know, everyone, a lot of people in the aftermath of this brought up Michael Jordan, who famously played basketball with the flu in the 90s, Right. And by the way, that's a beautiful story of like of triumph and sport and perseverance and stuff like that. But Michael Jordan was a millionaire operating at the highest, uh, highest level of his game where he was kind of controlling the things around him. Not, not, not entirely, but, but to a large degree, right? He had built himself into the champion that, that meant that he was going to perform no matter what. But Michael Jordan wasn't getting abused by the doctors. Not, and certainly not when he was a child. And then like coming to terms with that when, oh, that guy, Dr. Nasser, he's in jail now for touching girls. Do you see the difference in kind and why it's important that we kind of delve into a story like this? Because like I said, I kind of thought this was a throwaway, but then I remembered it's important to look into why it's a throwaway story and, and what it's designed to do. So, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully that makes sense to you guys. If you had any questions or comments, you can most, most assuredly send those to me uh, at, at the LB Muniz, M-U-N-I-Z on Twitter. So let's get into this last, uh, let's get into this last piece. But before I do that, I will, I'll, 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 I think I've left, I've teased you long enough. Let's, let's get to the, let's get to the name of the title the advice that a billionaire gave me. So I'm not going to tell this whole story. I might tell it somewhere else or turn it into a premium episode, but here's what he told me about the fed just happened to spend a decent bit of time. And I don't know if he was a billionaire, but he was certainly wealthy and, um, and a very successful man in his own right. And we're just sitting around talking, you know, we're just sitting talking as, as, as things tend to happen. And what he told me, it was very interesting because it was entirely unprompted was he told me to not fight the fed. And I say that because a lot of my audience is going to come from a similar libertarian, similar libertarian background that I, as I do. And a lot of what we talk about is the Federal Reserve. And I started the show talking about self-improvement 
and, and not becoming too stagnant with our ideas or too dogmatic in our ideological claims. Because that's a constant theme of this show. As a skeptic, I put inquiry before dogma. And certainly, it was very interesting when I'm listening to this, again, a very intelligent person who had some really interesting, interesting things to say about running businesses, how he dealt with disputes, how he raised his children, how he coached sports growing up. All these very well thought out and completely reasonable ways of looking at the world. And he told me, don't fight the Fed. Boy, if that wasn't a little bit of a rock to my world. See, it's, there is something to be said for the fact. because and, and the reason he gave was you don't fight the Fed because when they're doing stuff, when, they're, when things are, because when they're printing money, you want, you want to make more. That's why. And I think, again, this really this does trace back to, as you might envision, the, the paradigm shift that I'm kind of pushing for the broader libertarian space, which is less a focus on something like taxation is theft, which, again, I still agree with, but instead focusing on the fact that I, as an individual, need to make more money if I want to have, an influ- if I want to have influence over the world and events. So that's what a billionaire told me about the Fed. He told me not to fight it. I don't know. If you want more thoughts on that, then I would uh, suggest that you subscribe with a premium subscription because I'll definitely, I'll definitely release that story as, as bonus content for you guys or maybe just a private article for subscribers. We'll see. So let's talk about the future in three flags. Oh, I love this article. This is some of my better work. We're always sending signals. For the last year, I've embraced minimalism in the way that I dress. This generally means that if you catch me outside of work, I'll be wearing a black Henley with some jeans. This isn't always the case. I wasn't always a minimalist. I wasn't always just somebody dressed so plainly. In fact, for a long time, I wouldn't even wear black. I'm wearing green today, though, ironically enough. is Because at the beginning, the reason being at the beginning, I thought I might do black and green, and then I realized it was just easier to keep buying black. So that's what I did. Throughout my early 20s, I worked in retail, which meant I had a diverse wardrobe, to say the least. I always worked for brands that I wanted to wear, so that meant many years at a retailer like Brooks Brothers, accumulating every kind of colored shirt and pant you could envision. Oftentimes, I would hang out with a friend who had more of a athleisure aesthetic. aesthetic. And when I would hang out with this friend who had more of an athleisure aesthetic, or really just a more casual aesthetic overall, we would talk about the disparity in how we dressed. Oftentimes, the kind of guy who only wears a collared shirt if you force him to will offer some kind of non-defense for the way that they look. They will assert something to the extent of, quote, I'm not trying to prove anything. I just like to be comfortable. While I'm sure that they enjoy comfort that wearing, while they enjoy the comfort that wearing sweatpants brings, it is not correct to say that you're not trying to prove anything by doing that. After all, we're always sending signals. Did you ever look up your family's crest growing up? Depending on where your lineage traces to, you may have been able to find a few different ones to choose from. All of the old crests involved symbols and colors that denoted a story that traces across time. The crest was a symbol and a signal. And if you carried your family's crest into the world, or, and this could be whether you were a direct member or just, you know, quote unquote, part of the family, right? Part of a household. When you carried your family's crest into the world, you are a representative of more than just yourself. Now, today, we don't have the same allegiances to family crests we once did, 
but we still have symbols that define and reflect how we perceive ourselves. Oftentimes, today, we put those symbols on a flag. After all, we're always sending signals. In the aftermath of the terrorist attack on 9-11-2001, the United States of America rallied around their flag. Old Glory, as she is called on occasion, flew from the porch, from the car, bumper stickers, bathing suits, t-shirts, posters, and even the lapel of every American and the lapel of every politician's suit. It was commented by many people outside of the country that Americans were far more attached to their flag than their European cousins were doubly so for their brethren to the North and the South. Americans cared more about their flag than the Canadians did or than the Mexicans did. There is an identity that is built around a symbol like the American flag. And when you fly the flag in any way, wear it on a t-shirt, actually fly it in front of your house, have it on a, you know, have it, have it on a sticker in your car, have the little flag on your car. You are signaling your participation in that kind of identity. After all, we're always sending signals. I spend a lot of time driving around rural parts of the Midwest, and over the last few years, I've noticed an interesting trend, where once you would have seen the stars and stripes proudly flying over someone's lawn, I instead witnessed a new identity taking shape. I've always disliked the thin blue lag, thin blue lag, thin blue line flag as it's called. To me, the black and white look screams fascism, reinforced by the one blue line, reinforced by the one blue line and the deference that it associates with the ludicrous narrative about police being the only force in America that keeps people safe. It no longer became enough for these patriotic conservatives to fly their country's real flag. They needed to add this one in for good measure. While it may have begun as a symbol of police fraternity, it has expanded far beyond its original meaning. And I didn't put this down when I wrote the piece, but I've been sitting with this idea more and I was thinking about it. And I want to go ahead and expand that for you because this is why. This is why you will see conservatives and the right flying the thin blue line flag as they protest the police. Because the idea of what the thin blue line is to them is not actually tied up in the police. It's about, it's tied up, as I just alluded to, in the designation, in the basic designation and difference between law, between order and chaos. And in their minds and in the symbolism of the thin blue line metaphor, right? The original thin blue line metaphor is that the police officers wear blue. Why do police officers wear blue, by the way? Does anybody know? Anybody? Class? Anybody have a comment? I'm not doing this live, so nobody's going to comment, but The reason why police officers wear the color blue was to differentiate themselves from the red from the red coats of the regulars, because the modern police force can trace a lot of its roots to uh, England in um, at the turn of the century. And I think Victorian London, don't quote me on that. There's an interesting documentary about it on Amazon, though, if you go searching for it. So that's why police, generally speaking, wear blue. And so we have this idea that that at some point we've produced this idea of the thin blue line. And so these people wearing blue are the thin line that protect the, the, the law-abiding citizen, stable, orderly, law-abiding citizen from the chaotic criminal. Well, certainly, we've seen that the police aren't too interested in actually stopping the chaotic criminals from roaming the streets. 
and you know we might you might say that it was the governments that did it but it's kind of a inconsequential notion because the police at the end of the day are just the tools of the government they are the fist right your brain tells your fist to punch something you don't your, your fist doesn't have a mind of its own the police operate in a similar way so a lot of people have commented on this point that while well, conservatives are flying the thin blue line flag at play, you know, when they like storm, when they go and protest the government, isn't that kind of, <laughs> aren't conservatives stupid? So a lot of libertarians and progressives like to point out, and it's like, no, there's a distribution just like any other set of ideas. There's a distribution in, of intelligence. It's kind of obvious. So that you're going to find dumb conservatives and smart ones, just like you're going to find dumb libertarians and smart libertarians. So I think, I think the reason why we have seen an expansion of the thin blue line and the, and the ubiquity and popularity of the thin blue line comes at least in part because these conservatives are now perceiving themselves as being that thin blue line. They see, they're starting to see themselves as the line between order and chaos. And I don't know if that's a good thing, but I think that's what's happening. After all, we're always sending signals. Partly as a result of fashion, but more as a consequence of the continued polarization achieved during the 2020 election cycle, it is now common for me to see the thin blue line flag flown with the traditional USA flag. There are even houses that will only fly the thin blue line flag. I've seen pickup trucks that have the decal on their window or one mounted in the bed of the truck. Even in my neighborhood, right outside of Chicago, there is a house that has one with an American that has an American flag and a thin blue line flag. It's three in the piece. I think they actually did that just for the fourth because I passed by it recently and it's, it's just one now. But it did have one American flag with three thin blue line flags below it. And yet when I go over a block or two, I come upon another variation. This variation is the Pan-African USA flag or the Juneteenth flag, as I discovered it can also be called while I was Googling for the image. It, uh, it is less common to be sure, and I don't know that I describe it. Oh, yeah, I do. Okay. It is less common to be sure, but I did see one on a car during Independence Day. And as I just wrote, a couple blocks away from the house with a thin blue line flag, this one waves proudly on somebody's property. It takes what is regarded as a traditional African color scheme, red, black, and green, and imposes those over the traditional American flag we all know. Frankly, I have a less of a visceral reaction to this variation. Uh, then I do the thin blue line flag. I really don't like the thin blue line flag. I'm actually kind of fine with this Pan-African flag. But it does send a signal of the unraveling that, of an America that once was. After all, we're always sending signals. Across the street from the Juneteenth flag, as I was driving home, I saw a pride variation of the American flag, right? So you have basically the stars in the corner, and then you have the rainbow color flag of the pride of, of, of pride. It's comical the way things work. I already had the idea for this article in my mind when I took a different way home and noticed these two flags flying across the street from one another. Knowing about the other house a few blocks over, I was once again struck with a sign of the times. What's interesting is the degree to which all of these share the same nationalist impulse of the American flag. So what I mean by that is what's interesting is that none of these flags, even the Pan-African or the Pride flag, actually remove themselves from the nationalist idea of America. Instead, it's just sub-variations inside of that. After all, 
No one is changing the number of stars or bars depicted. It is merely it is merely a change in the featured colors. What's worrisome is that even in a politically homogenized homogenous area like Chicago, all three of these flags fr fly freely. Man, try and saying that three times fast. <laughs> you know, in a politically homogenous area like Chicagoland, all three of these flags fly freely. Throughout most of human history, political affiliation, in that it even existed, and the reason why I say, the reason why I put that as a, as a footnote I have on here is that, like, as to say, they're in a time before representative government, you don't need political affiliation. So, like, that's what I mean when I say that, in, if, in that a political affiliation existed, because, again, most people didn't need to associate themselves didn't need to identify themselves with a the political party in any set in any sense for most of human history. So when there, but where there was political affiliation or any kind of affinity or affiliation, it was a consequence over of geography over personality. So most political affiliation has been a consequence of geography over personality. It is in this way, at least in an American context, that you would hear stories about liberal Republicans, quote unquote, or quote unquote, conservative Democrats. Okay, so let's make sure we walk slowly through this. For most of human history, in that political affiliation existed, it was a consequence of geography over personality. So given that we have to have cardinality, there has to be a hierarchy, geography was over personality. And this is why we would hear stories about liberal Republicans or conservative Democrats. In a place like Congress, most of the differences we see are theater, but these tendencies manifest themselves amongst the people as well. If you weren't aware, we are in the midst of one of the largest political realignments in history, and those at the top know it well. After all, we are always sending signals. Personality varies at the biological level. This is to say, there is a degree to which your personality is outside of your conscious control. Through the grueling process of self-knowledge, I think you can amplify your better traits, silence your negative ones, and build outside of your comfort zone. But it is not the case that we come out of the box. We are not born into the world as a blank slate. The latency with which information can transmit has reached zero in our age. There is no gap. As soon as I publish this podcast, you're going to have it available for you at your fingertips. As soon as I publish an article, it's available to everybody within seconds. The latency with which information can transmit has reached zero. One way in which politics will develop as a consequence is that we will align more closely with an ideology that suits our personality type. Even if those around us and who even if those around us and who we are close to disagree. Okay. Let's stick, let's stick on that for just one second. Want to make sure we cut, want to make sure we're not getting lost in this. One way in which politics will develop as a consequence is that we will align more closely with an ideology that suits our personality type. Even if those around us and who we are close to disagree. Many will belabor the culture war and the evils of the left or right, but I think many, most, aren't going deep enough to understand what's really at stake. After all, 
we're always sending signals. Based on my study of history and philosophy, it seems to be the case that divergent personality types are a consequence of larger and more complex societies. Moreover, I have not found a convincing case made that would say that that would that would say removing either of these from a society would be a good thing. Divergent personality types seem to be a consequence of a certain level of civilization, a certain level of complex society. As society becomes more complex, it is more often the case that divergent personality types will exist in proximity to one another. Because there would be complement, sorry, that might be, might be a little hot on the mic. There would be complementary personality types, right? So like, you know, for example, if I'm messy and you're clean, or if I'm spontaneous and you're orderly, right? If I'm spontaneous one, you're orderly, well, or you don't like to travel, but I, I pull you out of your shell every now and again. And it's kind of me projecting here because I'm kind of the guy that needs to be pulled out of his shell sometimes when it comes to going out. But, but you know, so, so it's, it's good. Those are complementary personality types, right? If I'm a little more serious and you're a little more fun loving, then you can make sure we have fun and I can make sure serious things get done. But then there's also divergent personality types. There are personality types that, that you just couldn't interact with if you wanted to or you tried to. And I think those kinds of personality types are a consequence. They have to, and they are a necessary consequence. No matter what you try to do at the cultural level, they, they will manifest themselves as a result of biology. Many will note that left and right, quote left, quote right, won't, don't mean what they used to. I think the mistake of this is thinking that such vague and binary labels have any objective or absolute meaning that holds across time. This is how I define left and right. It's far more useful to conceive of these terms as being contextual in nature, united by an idea. For example, we might say that American progressivism manifested itself in both a left and right wing. Today, we merely call the right wing variation Conservative Incorporated, Conservatism Inc. Neoliberalism and neoconservatism are just left and right manifestations of American progressivism. After all, we're always sending signals. Better sense making means bringing these ideas to you in a neutral way so that you can learn and apply this principle in your own life. If I am correct, and political realignment is happening not at a geographic level, but a biological one, we would do well to not think about the divergent half of the population as being the enemy. Us first, them is about as natural as the heart beating in your chest. In the three flags above, we see how the broader herd of America is changing the way that they signal their allegiance. After all, we're always sending signals. This is really the, if, thanks for making it this far, by the way. But this is really the crux of what I'm trying to introduce to people and why I think it's so important. Yes, it's true that while right now it's, you know, I think, I think it's um, the leading, the leading thing is the, is the, you know, realignment based off biology. This will have the catch up effect of people moving at some point in time. But if, if, if you're from a more homogenous family, as I think some people are, I, I am not, I have a lot of different beliefs inside of my broader family and I'm from a larger family, which I think contributes to that. But even just in the type of work that you do, and the type of people you interact with in your professional capacity. Have you noticed 
that the differences are starting to maximize. And you might wonder where those differences are coming from. And unfortunately, given that we have a corporate press that is more concerned with an agenda than they are with actually providing meaning, value, and sense-making, given that we have that in this country, it's they're just saying, well, this is a consequence of the other being really, really bad, right? And, and frankly, as it relates to vaccine passports and vaccinations, we're already starting to see people being completely okay with the idea of segregating society, which is something I predicted in, in December. It gives me no joy to say that, but it's true. So what we're supposed to do as an aftermath of this is kind of, again, why it matters that you make yourself a better person. So that way you can surround yourself and associate with the people who are going to give you the most joy. If you like what you heard today, go to inawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.